welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, where today we will spend some time very close to home, this following our long escape to the South Pacific in a previous episode, Nukuhiva. For our story hour today, something slightly different from the normal format. We thought we would walk you through a typical and frequent engagement here at Fort Meigs, responding to calls in assisting writers and scholars, even the general public, with their research into the War of 1812. A task sometimes troubling and cumbersome, and other times exhilarating and obsessive. Human beings enjoy being inspired, and we do not like unanswered questions and it often leads to feverish quests into the dust where all other work gets shoved aside. And so was the case of a recent inquiry and adventure, trying to solve a mystery surrounding the fate of one Ambrose Arthur, a Kentucky soldier serving here on the fateful day of May 5th, 1813, in the hours marking the heaviest fighting in and around the foot of the rapids. We'd like to share with you the details of this adventure, its process and twists, and what answers there may be from long ago. The Ambrose Arthur Mystery. Again, welcome. provide you some context to the day, in the early morning of May 5th, 1813, two regiments of Kentucky militia, perhaps 1,200 men, were descending the Maumee River from Fort Winchester in some 18 flatboats to render aid and reinforcement to a seriously beleaguered Fort Meigs, then enduring its fifth day of heavy bombardment from a surrounding Allied army of British and American Indians. This force had been rushed into service in March of that year for a six-month term, and now, in pouring rain and a turbulent current, their orders had only recently been received as they heard the great guns unloading on the wooden frontier stockade. The leading regiment, under the command of Colonel William Dudley, were to land on the north side of the river, form up and assault the main British artillery batteries just opposite the American stronghold. Utilizing the element of surprise, the cannon were to be spiked and rendered useless before recrossing the river for the safety of the fort on the southern shore. The following regiment, commanded by Colonel William Boswell, were to make land on the southern side just upstream of the fort itself, then battle their way through the entangling forests, then occupied by a large body of American Indians, harassing the fort and enclosing the encirclement. Despite leaving the baggage behind in the boats, this southern strike of Boswell's was successful with minimal loss, excepting the injury of the overall brigade commander, General Green Clay, who fractured his leg in the various ditches alongside the escarpments of the fort's earthen defenses. A 
What happened on the north side of the river, now sometimes known as Dudley's Defeat, was at first promising. The Kentuckians were initially successful in chasing the overwhelmed British gunners from their positions, though mistakenly without spikes only managed to unlimber a few of the guns, but then gave in to a degree to impulse and impetuousness and continually fed troops into a small arms exchange between the lightly manned spy corps and arriving American Indians, who ultimately lured the Kentuckians deeper into a classic trap, destroying much of all those engaged. Of the near 800 men of Dudley's Northern Command, only between 150 and 175 men were known to have escaped to the boats and safely found a home inside the walls of Fort Meigs. All others being either killed outright in the boggy forests beyond the river or captured and herded like naked animals into the British headquarters and ultimately bound onto prison ships sent sailing for Lake Erie. The inquiry came in from a writer in Texas on an otherwise quiet Thursday afternoon. The sound of the phone ringing, breaking an hours-long episode of complete silence in a museum wrapped in the stillness of winter. A native son of Kentucky, the caller was in the midst of research for a book on Dudley's failed relief effort and famous downfall in the annals of bluegrass history. There was a note of hesitation in his voice when after a few words of introduction, he asked if anything was known about the fate of an entire company of soldiers under Captain Ambrose Arthur on May the 5th. And he admitted that he had been able to uncover nothing in his own work, turning over the soil at his distant disposal. Upon its presentation, at first the name meant nothing to me, and so struck was I with the specific nature of the inquiry, I didn't even bother to ask why so obscure an answer was being sought. Several hypotheses were put forward. First that Arthur was actually an original part of Boswell's Southern Regiment, yet somehow ended up fighting with Dudley on the north side of the river with the wrong regiment. An interesting idea, as we do know that in the confusion of the gray morning, the gunfire, the rainfall, and the churning spring waters of the Maumee, several boats had missed their target and mistakenly made landfall all over the place. And second, if on the north side, without a proper regimental colonel, perhaps Arthur's company was among the men who abandoned the attack there and rejoined the main army across the river in the safety of the fort, thus comprising a large part of the 150 men we do know strictly adhered to General Harrison's order of immediate withdrawal. So, just to review, the company of Captain Ambrose Arthur, possibly attached to Boswell's command, possibly on the wrong side of the river, possible withdrawal and escape to safety. What was the fate of Ambrose Arthur and his men? 
we had made an attempt at fortifying ourselves within the boats by building on their ends and sides with poles through which we had left portholes. Very early in the morning of the 5th, we set out and soon commenced our passage of the rapids. It was a damp morning and I was lying in the stern of the boat, covered up in a blanket, not having entirely recovered from a severe attack of the measles. I then learned that we were to land on the left bank and storm the British batteries there erected for the purpose of annoying the fort across the river. But what further was ordered, I, I did not ascertain. Having learnt that we were to fight, I looked on all surrounding objects as things which to me might soon possibly disappear forever. And I reverted to my friends at home for the purpose of mentally bidding them a final farewell. And these reflections produced a calm melancholy and nothing like the palpitations at heart. My reveries were dissipated by the landing of the boat a mile or two above the point of attack. Lieutenant Joseph Underwood, Kentucky Militia. The first place to start would be the Kentucky Registry of Soldiers for the War of 1812, muster rolls, and the writings of Dr. Eugene Watkins, who, for his dissertation, compiled the comprehensive list of all units known serving at Fort Meigs from various sources. Both of these documents show General Green Clay's brigade called to arms in early 1813 that brigade being divided into two regiments under Colonel William Dudley and Colonel William Boswell, as we've heard, and the further division of those regiments into two battalions each and 11 companies each, 10 line companies and one light spy company each. Both of these documents show the company of Ambrose Arthur as being listed firmly under Dudley's command. Therefore, we know Arthur would have been deployed to the north side and been in the thick of the fighting. Not a forlorn refugee from Boswell's command, foundering in the muck of the wrong riverbank. That was question one, solved. Curiously though, within the Kentucky muster rolls, the company of Captain John D. Thomas was listed twice once under Dudley's command, and then exactly again under Boswell's regiment. This is because Thomas was a part of Boswell's command, but listed with Dudley because he did his actual fighting with him. Here is the evidence of exactly which company got mixed up in the eddies of the current and landed on the wrong side of the river. This is supported by the Watkins paper and based on the three best surviving accounts of the eyewitnesses present. Looking at the remarks for each soldier within the Kentucky registry, it appears that not only was Thomas mistakenly fighting on the north side with Dudley, but he and his men took extremely heavy casualties that day. No doubt 
in the gristle of the combat. The research by Watkins also lists that John Galbraith's company of spies was also a combat company of Boswell's regiment, but had also landed on the opposite bank and mistakenly fought alongside Dudley's men. But more on this little side mystery in a moment. The Yanissary Triangle will be an audio cue for you to recall this moment later in our mystery. And so just to review again, because I know there's a lot of different names being thrown about and it's easy to be confused. What was the role of Ambrose Arthur's company? He was deployed with Dudley. John D. Thomas and John W. Galbraith were mistakenly serving with Dudley in the wrong place. Shortly before we landed, we had been fired on by some Indians on the right bank of the river. And Captain Clark was shot in the head by this fire, as I was told. We were formed on the shore into three parallel lines in order to march for the batteries. One line directed to form the line of battle in the rear of the batteries parallel to the river. And the other two lines directed to form the line of battle, one above and the other below the, uh, the battery, at right angles to the river. And our men raised a tremendous shout, which was the first intimation the enemy at the battery received of our approach, and which so alarmed them that they abandoned their batteries without making any resistance. At this time, the enemy had gotten in the rear of our line, formed parallel to the river, and were firing upon our troops. And Captain J.C. Morrison's company did not remain in this situation long. Having nothing to do and being without orders, it was determined by Morrison and myself to march our company out and to join the combatants. Accordingly, we did so. In passing out, we fell on the extreme left wing of the whole regiment, and we were soon engaged in a severe conflict. We were constantly ordered to charge. Shortly after this, Captain J.C. Morrison was shot through the temples. The ball passed behind the eyes and cut the optic nerve so that he could not see. I was at my post on the left of the company when it happened, and I was informed by a soldier that our captain was killed. At length, orders were passed along the line directing us to fall back and keep up a retreating fire. As soon as this movement was made, the Indians were greatly encouraged and advanced upon us and by more horrid yells than words can give an idea of. Of the different companies soon became mixed, confusion ensued, and a general rout took place. I will state the manner in which part of the regiment was disposed of and how it was to be were completely surprised by finding the British at the batteries when we retreated from the woods. Captain Henry's and Captain Archibald Morrison's company were left at or below the batteries, having constituted part of the line which was to form below the batteries as I understood. Whether they remained after the residue of the companies pursued the Indians in the woods of their own accord or in pursuance to orders, I am not informed. The British organized men enough to beat them, and Captain Henry, with the greater part of his company, was taken. And Captain A. Morrison, who was the brother of Captain J.C. Morrison, after being wounded, retreated with his company, reached our boats, and with a hundred or fifty or about that number of soldiers, many from other companies having joined him, crossed the river to Fort Meigs. The British 
after defeating Henry and A. Morrison, instead of following in the woods to aid the Indians, remained at the batteries, no doubt expecting us to return there. They were not deceived. We did return in the greatest disorder. A surrender was the inevitable consequence. On arriving near the old garrison, I saw that the Indians had formed a line to the left of the road. I perceived that the prisoners were running what is termed the gauntlet, and that the Indians were shooting and tomahawking the men as they passed the line. How many lives were lost at this place I cannot tell, but the brave Captain Lewis was among the number. There is a tremendous amount we can glean here from Lieutenant Underwood's account just read. First, there is the knowledge of three officers being felled. Captain John C. Morrison, his immediate superior, shot through the temples in the thick of the forest fight. Captain Joseph Clark, killed in the landing operation at the outset of the strike, and Captain Lewis, who fell to the tomahawk in the ditch just outside old Fort Miami, the British headquarters. These will be important clues for us a little down the way. A little later on in his account, Lieutenant Underwood teaches us that it was the company of Captain Archibald Morrison who was positioned downstream of the British artillery, and it was they who made good their escape to the boats and were successful in recrossing to safety. Archibald Morrison's company was a large body of men, based on the muster roll, and would have made up nearly the entirety of the 170 or so said to have egressed and seen daylight that dark day. So this provides us with the answer to our second major query for the hour. Was Ambrose Arthur and his men the company that made their way back pursuant to orders? No, it was Archibald Morrison. But we still seek the ultimate fate of Captain Ambrose Arthur. And this leads us to the clues of the three fallen officers just learned. We know that Dudley's regiment contained 11 companies and 11 company commanders, captains, plus two from Boswell's regiment, mistakenly serving on the north side of the river, bringing the total to 13 captains on the ground. From Joseph Underwood's tale, we know three of those men were killed in action, winnowing our countdown to 10, and one was able to make the retreat, falling to nine, nine. But the British are scrupulous war makers, tidy and professional soldiers, and they keep records. They made an official return of prisoners taken May the 5th, 1813, and we wish you were able to see this remarkable document through some kind of audio telepathy. Without any names, it lists counts of soldiers taken at every rank. For example, it lists one major, and by default that must be Major James Shelby, whose overall command the regiment fell to 
after Dudley's well-witnessed death. And it lists eight captains captured. Eight. But that leaves a glaring discrepancy with the total count of nine we had just arrived at. How may we account for this uncomfortable difference? For that, we must now look at our little side mystery. The spy company of Captain John W. Galbraith. John Galbraith's company of spies is listed in Eugene Watkins' dissertation of troops serving at Fort Meigs, but it does not appear in the official muster rolls, the Kentucky Registry of Soldiers for 1812. Watkins' knowledge of this unit is derived from a single source, a soldier's letter to his wife, William Johnson to Mary Johnson. Johnson was a soldier serving in Galbraith's small band, and he wrote about it. But by looking at the letter as a whole, and only a portion of the original survives, Johnson was a fairly poor speller all over the place, making unique versions of words. And this is not uncommon in the age, and clues we gather here are a good reason why manuscript transcriptions must and should retain the original spellings. Instead of John Galbraith, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H, we now believe Johnson meant to spell John Keelbreath, K-I-L-B-R-E-A-T-H. John Keelbreath is listed in the muster rolls as a private in the Boswell Company of John D. Thomas. And in the remarks beside the soldier's name, it states Keelbreath was promoted to captain and was to form a light spy company. Leslie Combs, a rather famous and well-known name in the Western theater, took pains after the war to make a known record of this unusual circumstance. Once on the ground on May 5th, it appears John Keelbreath's company of spies was simply and naturally just attached to Leslie Combs's existing company of spies already serving in Dudley's regiment. As such, both men would have been on the far left of the attacking line and in the vanguard of the advance. We hear now from Captain Leslie Combs for his piece to this puzzle. And the story is ghostwritten in the third person. Just before the batteries were taken, a body of Indians lying in ambush had fixed upon Captain Combs' command and shot down several of his men. He immediately formed in front of them, posting Captain Keelbreath on the left flank, while he himself occupied the right, and maintained his ground till reinforced by Colonel Dudley, who felt the necessity of bringing him off the ground inasmuch as he had given him no orders to retreat and had determined not to sacrifice him. Captain Keelbreath was killed at his post, and Captain Combs was slightly touched by a ball before he received any assistance. 
They soon after routed the enemy and pursued them by successive charges of bayonet some two or three miles through the swamp. In the meantime, the British had retaken their batteries and driven off our left column, which had been left to guard them. The Indians, too, were largely reinforced and were trying to surround the American detachment, or, at any rate, to cut them off from their boats. Under these circumstances, a retreat was ordered, with directions again to form at the batteries, it not then being known to the party that they had already been retaken. From Leslie Combs, we understand that the Great Battle of May 5th began with his unit being fired upon. And also, Captain John Keelbreath was one of the very first to perish in that struggle. With the now noted death of John Keelbreath, that brings our total number of company commanders down to a new total of eight, securely the same number listed on the British prisoner returns for the day. Therefore, and here is our grand answer. By the process of elimination, Captain Ambrose Arthur must have been one of the eight taken and held captive. The fate is revealed as all are accounted for. And surely his men were surrounded and threw down their arms alongside their leader. To add even greater detail and garner a clearer picture, we hear now from Asa Lewis in a private letter to his general at Fort Meigs. A sudden yell was raised by our men and began moving on the right, which ran the whole lines like fire put to trains of powder. I learned afterwards this was in consequence of a party of Indians on horseback meeting us. The hazel brush was so thick I did not see them. Here a brisk fire commenced on the head of the left flank, which was directly supported by the whole of the center, except one company, which rushed on with the right down to the batteries. About this time, one or more of the colonel's staff met me with orders to reinforce the columns engaged. Captain Arthur, with one half his command, was immediately faced outwards from the river and ordered on to strengthen the left flank and column. And here I was fully appraised of the importance of preventing the men from huddling too much together in the brush. I then pushed on to the batteries, reached the first gun, and attempted to break the carriage wheels of cast iron, but could not. Knocked out the linchpins, etc., and threw them all away. Saw no enemy here. The colonel came up at this moment from under the hill of the river, followed by his men in disorder. The fire continues in becoming more warm and heavy in the brush. Supposing the main body of the enemy was engaged with our men, I called to the colonel and told him I thought he had better move on and reinforce the troops engaged. Well, he waved his sword over his head and ordered his men to follow and rushed into the woods. And here was the great error. Asa Lewis, letter to General Green Clay. 
Lewis's letter to Green Clay is a good summation of all that we have discovered this day. Once Leslie Combs's company was engaged in the firefight, most of Morrison's center column, and this would be Lieutenant Underwood's action, was immediately sent to reinforce Combs. And after a time, and after the battle had increased in intensity, additional troops were dispatched to the forest to bolster the fighting there. And Captain Ambrose Arthur's company was the first sent in this second wave of reinforcements. Shortly thereafter, Dudley, with the whole of his rightmost column, entered the forest in support as well. This places Ambrose Arthur and his command in the thick of the fighting, likely taking casualties, and ultimately captured in large part. The captives were divided between the British brig Hunter and the schooner Nancy for transport to the Huron River on the south shore of Lake Erie and paroled two days after the great first siege officially ended. Later on in his letter, Asa Lewis informs us that yet another company commander, a Captain Irving, died of his wounds aboard HMS Hunter. Gut shot and bone soaked from the pouring rain the previous day, Irving likely shivered in the cool lake air of early spring. Ambrose Arthur survived the war, we know that. He was paroled on May 11th at Huron with all the other Kentuckians and slowly made his way back south by foot or by canoe. Asa Lewis, for example, was back in Clark County, Kentucky by the second week of June to write his letter. According to his pension application, Ambrose Arthur was officially discharged from service in the Kentucky militia on September 29, 1813, one day after all his soldiers. The date of his discharge is simply the natural expiration of his six-month term of service. Ambrose Arthur died in 1859 after serving as postmaster for his county in Kentucky. So there we have the Ambrose Arthur mystery. I hope it wasn't all terribly confusing. Captain Arthur firmly and correctly in Dudley's command, not escaping across the river, heavily engaged in the fighting and his ultimate fate captured by the Allied Army of 1813. And there you also have a typical Thursday afternoon here at the foot of the rapids. Our thanks to Eugene Watkins for his paper, retired Master Gunnery Sergeant Burns for his query, True Science for her inspiration, and all of you for listening. Huzzah.